Hey there, it's Martine. Before we start the show, I need to tell you one more time about this incredible deal for a subscription to The Washington Post. Until the end of the month, you can subscribe to The Post for just 99 cents every four weeks. Or for just $9.99, you can give a one-year subscription as a gift to a friend or a family member. This is the best deal that we've ever offered, and it's almost over. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe before the end of November. Okay, on to the show. This is potentially the most important week for abortion rights in decades. Caroline Kitchener covers women and gender for the Lily. The case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is going to go before the Supreme Court on Wednesday. In that case, the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments about a 15-week abortion ban out of Mississippi. That is a law that proposes banning abortion after 15 weeks in the state. The law was enacted in 2018 and never actually took effect. It was immediately blocked. But this law is, you know, pretty similar to all of these gestational bans that we've been seeing all across the country. I mean, they're, they're different weak numbers, but the premise is the same. Now, Roe v. Wade protects somebody's constitutional right to an abortion before viability. Well, 15 weeks, significantly before viability. So potentially what's at stake here is Roe v. Wade. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 30th. Today, we hear from the Mississippi public official who's trying to bring down Roe v. Wade. I've been looking to December 1st for quite a while, knowing that this is going to be, you know, potentially the biggest Supreme Court abortion case in decades. And I've been thinking a lot about Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch. I know it is an absolutely crazy time. Fitch is the state's top lawyer and a part of the legal team defending the ban. After the Supreme Court decided to take up the case, she specifically asked the court to use it to gut Roe v. Wade. People have been trying to kill Roe v. Wade since its inception, but now the Supreme Court has a 6-3 conservative majority, which makes this the most vulnerable moment for Roe v. Wade in years. I think it's important to know that If that happens, there are already a whole slew of states that have something in place called trigger bans, which means that the minute the Supreme Court decides to overturn Roe v. Wade, abortion is instantly going to be illegal in those states. The legislature doesn't need to do anything at all. So potentially, we are looking at a country where in vast swaths of the South and the Midwest, there is no abortion at all. Once this case comes through, others will follow. Mm -hmm. That's what's so important. You let the people decide. The way that Fitch talks about her reasons for supporting abortion bans is a rationale that I haven't really heard before. She's been coming out with all of these slogans and, and videos around this idea that abortion bans are empowering to women. And with an abortion ban... Women no longer have to decide, do I have a career? Do I 
become a mother because you can do both. The slogan that she's using is empower women, promote life. Now, basically what she says is that abortion bans are empowering to women. If Roe v. Wade were to fall, it would be empowering to women. And that's because at Roe v. Wade in 1973, if you got pregnant, you really had to choose, do I have a career or do I have children? Now, she argues that 50 years later, we're in a very different place. There are all these supports for women and you no longer have to make a choice. You can have it all. And if Roe falls and abortion is off the table, they will realize that they can be successful mothers and successful working people as well. Now, that is not an argument that I had heard before. I was pretty intrigued by it, especially because a huge part of my job is to write about all the ways in which America and our government fails working mothers, you know, especially in a, in a state like Mississippi, which is the state where the highest percentage of women live in poverty. I was really interested in the fact that she was drawing out this particular argument. So you recently had the opportunity to interview Lynn Fitch. Tell me a little bit about how she came to form these beliefs. I've always worked my entire career, and I've been practicing law for 36 years, which wow. is hard to believe. I started practicing at the Attorney General's office as a special assistant attorney general at the age of 23. So I was, you know, was working here when I had my first child. So Lynn Fitch was a single mother of three. Um, she... Know, divorced her husband and raised three young children, mostly on her own. And that was part of why I thought her story was so interesting, because she was really out there saying, you know, look, I did it. And, you know, when I started talking to her friends and, and to her, her herself, you know, she absolutely drew personal inspiration for this argument. You know, I had friends tell me, you know, she doesn't believe that women need to ask, can I have this baby or should I not have this baby? Because she has proven that you can do both. And I thought it was really interesting that she was taking her own life story and really making it this crux of or this inspiration for this major, major case. Tell me a little bit more about what it was like for her to go through that, to be a single mom to three kids? And what were some of the challenges that she came up against? Yeah, absolutely. She is the first female attorney general. And so she spent a lot of her career in rooms with no other women, no other mothers. From you know what her friends told me, faced a lot of criticism for having to duck out to go to the football game or to the play or you know miss whatever various event it was because she needed to be there for her family. You know, I've heard from her friends and colleagues and people who surround her that that is something that she really prioritizes in her office is, you know, making sure that the women that she employs are able to prioritize their families. And, and she's that kind of employer. And how did she start to see those experiences as part of a bigger set of ideas around really going after abortion in her state? 
Well, she was able to make it work. You know, you have to be very organized. With three yeah. children, trying to keep them all where they're supposed to be. Uh, so I color-coded on my calendar and kept up with, you know, all the different things that needed to occur in their life. Now I could be there. Missing very little. She talks a lot about the importance of community. She talks about a group of six women who were also mothers and really, really helped her out as she was raising her kids. We're always there for me. If I couldn't be there, they would, you know, run do the errands or pick up the children or whatever the case might be. So she talks a lot about the importance of support networks. And she says, you know, you you don't need to rely on the government and you don't need to turn to abortion because you should, you know, lean on the people in your community. You should lean on your family, your friends, various charities, churches, employers should help out. There really should be, she calls it, you know, a holistic approach to taking care of mothers with young children. They need support from their community, Mm. from the friends, the family, um, even certainly the work environment. And it's not coming from the government. We shouldn't be relying on the government. But mm. you know, we're such a faith-based driven um, state and country. I, I think we have to really stop back, step back and go, our faith base, our churches, they are willing. They're charitable. They want to help. I think it's also important to know that she did come from a lot of privilege, her father you know, was a wealthy businessman who you know, owned a large farm, and that was the context that she came from. So you know, she did have various financial supports that many, many women facing a similar situation in Mississippi would not have. Children all definitely went to daycare. Um, there were times you know, on different children that I needed somebody to stay at home with them for a year or two when they were younger. Um, but they all went to um, Mother's Morning Out or after school care. Or- and I wonder what she has to say about that. The fact that she was able to make it work as a single mother of three, but that is because she was able to hire other people to help her, which is not an option that a lot of people have. Yeah. I mean, I, I really pressed her on that question. I asked her a lot about the criticism that she was getting for this argument. I mean, basically, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, that's fine for you, but what about all of these extremely poor women in Mississippi who don't have this wonderful community and are very much all on their own and can't afford to have kids? And, you know, put put aside the fact that they can't afford to have kids. They don't want to have kids. You know, it's not just you know, this question of, okay, can you afford them? Therefore, you should have them, right? It's There are a lot of other things that go into somebody's decision about whether or not to have children. But she really pressed back on that question and said, you know, we need to be there for those women. We need to do everything we can to empower them. She really, really uses this word empower a lot. She has spent a lot of her career fighting for equal pay for women and financial literacy classes and these sorts of things that she says, you know, are tools that we can give to women so that they can better support themselves. But, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's just not enough. You can't learn how to manage money. You can't learn financial literacy if you don't have any. After the break the evolution of anti-abortion advocacy. We'll be right back. 
It feels like Lynn Fitch is using a lot of the language around feminism and empowering women, wanting to make them more independent and morphing that into an argument that's also about denying access to abortion. How is she perceived in Mississippi or like, I guess, how many women are looking at her argument and saying, yeah, that makes sense to me. That really fits with how I see what I want out of the world. It's a really good question. You know, Mississippi is a very, very conservative state. It is one of the most anti-abortion states. I believe it's one of the top three anti-abortion states in the country. So there are a lot of people who agree with her, a lot of voters who agree with her. But she had pretty tough primaries. The 2019 race for attorney general was was very close in the Republican primary, and there was a runoff. And interestingly, she got a lot of flack for her support of equal pay. She went up against two Republican men who used her support for equal pay to sort of say, you know, oh, Lynn Fitch is a closet Democrat. Mississippi is the only state in the whole country that does not have an equal pay law. And they really went after her for saying that that should change, which I thought was interesting. Once you got to the general, there wasn't really very much of a contest. Her opponent was very in support of abortion rights, and that just you know doesn't really fly there. One thing that is 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 interesting to point out, I think, is that um, for many many years before Lynn Fitch, there was the same attorney general, and it was a Democrat. Jim Hood, who is extremely anti-abortion. So, you know, it, it really seems to me writing about abortion in Mississippi that it's it's pretty tough to succeed as a politician if your, you know, abortion views don't line up with most of the state. So for people who support abortion rights and look at Fitch and say, well, Raising three children as a single mom was the right decision for you, but that doesn't mean that it's the right decision for everyone else. And it's hypocritical to say that you support women's empowerment when you're denying them access to abortions. What does she have to say about that? She would say that those supports do exist. She would say that if Roe falls and there's no abortion anymore, that charities and churches and crisis pregnancy centers especially will step up and they will fill that gap and they will be there for women in the way that her community was there for her. I, I think we need to, in our states, uh, take a real hard look at the cost of daycare, determine um, what could be done, not necessarily a, a subsidy, mm-hmm. but what we could do for the overall um, pass and look at daycare to make sure that one, the children are receiving the best care possible. Uh, Does it fit within the economic scale for the mother? And she would also say that if we can all stop talking about abortion and stop arguing about Roe v. Wade, that we can finally get down to the business of talking about work-life balance and how women can, you know, and, and this is her quote, have it all. Um, And so I think we're certainly at a time where we should be uh, making that uh, review. I mean, it's something that we really haven't looked at, you know, because it's it's been being overshadowed by Roe. Do you buy that as an argument or does does evidence bear out that that these 
charities and organizations are in a position to be able to support all the people who would otherwise be seeking out abortions? No, it doesn't. I have written about crisis pregnancy centers quite a bit, and they provide diapers and they provide, you know, maybe a stroller and baby wipes and things that you need in your first couple of weeks, maybe your first couple of months. But what about after that? You know, it's it's a very temporary support. What what do you think Lynn Fitch represents in the current state of our national debate around abortion? Quite a few years ago, the anti-abortion movement realized that it was not enough to just frame this conversation around the unborn baby and protecting the unborn baby. That was not going to be enough to persuade enough people to get on their side. So many very prominent anti-abortion groups started talking about protecting the woman, protecting the mother. Um, so, so many of these regulations that you see, these you know, targeted regulations at abortion providers, these laws that require abortion clinics to jump through all sorts of hoops, which result in many of them closing, these laws, which have been very successful, are all framed around, we need to make abortion safer for the woman. That is a lot more palatable to people who might fall somewhere in the middle than just we need to protect the unborn baby. And so what you hear again and again from anti-abortion activists is we want to protect women. We are so pro-women. We want everything that is best for the woman and for the mother. And so in that vein... Lynn Fitch's argument is, it's kind of an extension of that, right? It's an extension of this concept that anti-abortion regulations are good for women. They're good for women's health. And in her case, she's making the argument that it's good for their whole life, their fulfillment, their happiness. Lynn Fitch will be in the Supreme Court tomorrow. She'll be there as the justices ask their questions, as thousands of protesters gather outside. Everybody is going to be watching the court tomorrow. Everybody knows this, this is probably the most important case on abortion to be decided in decades. The arguments will be made, and then everybody will wait many months until June, when we'll know how the court decides. Caroline Kitchener covers women and gender for The Lily. Renny Svernovsky produced and mixed the segment with editing from Rena Flores. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We at The Post are continuing to cover the latest news about the Omicron variant and what scientists are learning about the threat that this variant poses. If you are eager to hear more, I will be moderating a Twitter space, which is basically a live conversation on Twitter, this Wednesday, December 1st at 1230 p.m. Eastern. I will be talking to a couple of our health reporters about where Omicron has been detected, as well as what we know and don't know about how it spreads and the effectiveness of vaccines against it. 
To join in and listen, follow me or the Washington Post account on Twitter. You'll see the Twitter space at the top of your mobile app once the conversation gets started. We'll also put a link in today's show notes where you can set a reminder to log in. Again, that's 12.30 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, December 1st on Twitter. See you then. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.